0: Welcome to this special 100th episode of Grating the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by the State Historian at UConn Hartford and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Walt Woodward. For our Centennial Edition, I've researched a story that's almost as old as Connecticut and found so much that's new and surprising. We call it The Unlikely Legend and Even More Unlikely History of the Charter Oak. Coming up now on Grading the Nutmeg. The Unlikely Legend and Even More Unlikely History of the Charter Oak by Walter Woodward. Historians like me are indoctrinated from the very start of our professional training to place profound emphasis on accuracy and fact. Now that's not quite the same as finding out the truth about history. Those who study history to determine historical truth, to learn what really happened in the past, soon find out that historians frequently and deeply disagree about what is the truth about almost any topic you can think of. But although they regularly disagree about what really happened in the past, those disagreements are, or should be, based on the interpretation of facts, and not the facts themselves. The facts, the actual actions and events of the past, do matter, especially in history. They are the bedrock foundation of any historical story that's worthy of your time or your attention. Except, of course, when it comes to legends and folk tales. These are the one category of historical story, of representation of a past event, where fact frequently takes a back seat to meaning, and where inaccuracy, fake news, if you will, can tell you far more than the truth itself. Legends become legends, live on in popular memory because they tell people something important about themselves and about their history. And when a legend is based on a false retelling of a story, the thing that didn't happen that people want to believe really did happen, it can be, and often is, a window into their times, their culture, their values, and sometimes even their souls. To demonstrate this, I'm going to talk about one Connecticut folktale based on historical events that has morphed over time into Connecticut's most iconic legend. And in that transition, it turned hard historical fact into something significantly less accurate, but much more meaningful. Most of us know, or at least think we know about this legend, at least in part. It is such an iconic element of Connecticut's cultural heritage that our children learn about it in grade school, just as their parents, grandparents, and great-grandparents did during the same stage of their educations. It's a legend about a tree and a piece of paper, a meanie-head monarch, and a crafty and independent group of subjects. And, of course, you know what it is. It's the story of the Charter Oak you probably remember at least parts of it from your early education. Now, for those of you who may have forgotten the details, or who perhaps are newcomers to the land of steady habits, let me set the stage by giving the historical, that is to say, factual and accurate details behind the legend. The Charter Oak story goes all the way back to the earliest days of Connecticut Colony, in the year 1660, That's when the Puritans in Connecticut found themselves in a particularly uncomfortable situation with their mother country, England, and its recently restored monarch, Charles II. You see, 25 years earlier, Connecticut's Puritan cousins in England had been at loggerheads with King Charles I, Charles II's father, and in fact were about to first go to war with him and then cut off his head. Because the Puritan-Monarch relations had been so strained, the Puritans going to Connecticut at the time hadn't followed protocol and asked for royal permission to settle there. They just did it. And when, shortly after they arrived, they decided to create a new colony called Connecticut, they didn't ask the king's permission then either. They just did that too. And that all worked out fine during the 20 years or so the English Puritans were fighting the king and running the government. Like Ferris Bueller on his day off, Connecticut did pretty much what it wanted to do without oversight or supervision. They made their own laws, they elected their own rulers, and they did all they could to make Connecticut a godly commonwealth. But once the English monarchy was restored in 1659, Charles II, the newly restored monarch, had every reason in the world to be more than a little miffed at what those upstart Connecticut's had been doing, especially since they were rumored, and correctly as it turned out, to be giving sanctuary to the very Puritan leaders who had signed his father's death warrant. Connecticut was really worried, terrified actually, that Charles II would take revenge on Connecticut by taking over its government, repealing its laws, invalidating its land claims, and possibly even punishing its rulers. So what did they do? In a rushed decision by the General Assembly, they sent Governor John Winthrop Jr. on an emergency trip to England to try to secure a royal charter from the king that would recognize Connecticut as a legitimate colony. It was a long shot, but there were few alternatives. Winthrop was a charming and persuasive young leader. And perhaps a factor in this, he and the new monarch shared a surprisingly similar physical resemblance. Anyway, the handsome young king and the handsome young governor met. And to everyone's surprise, if not astonishment, Winthrop did get a royal charter from the king. And not just any royal charter, but one with terms so favorable, historians then and now are at a loss to explain how Winthrop was able to get it. In essence, the Royal Charter of 1662 gave Connecticut virtual independence more than a century before the United States gained independence. Connecticut got more land, a colony that now stretched all the way from the Narragansett Bay to the Pacific Ocean, the right to choose its own rulers without royal interference, and the right to make its own laws. The generosity of the 1662 Royal Charter was, to say the least, simply amazing. And, as one might have expected, it wasn't long before the king began having second thoughts about what he'd done. As early as 1664, Charles II was asking more or less politely for givebacks from Connecticut, and Connecticut was more or less politely deflecting those requests. The dance continued until Charles II died and his brother James II became king in 1685. James, a devout Catholic, wasn't about to have any independent-minded Puritan colonies running things their own way on his watch. So in 1686, he decided to combine all the New England colonies into one royally governed colony called the Dominion of New England, and he sent his military commander, Sir Edmund Andros, to America to take charge of the colonial government. Finally, we get to the Charter Oak story everyone knows, and here, historical fact morphs into legend. On Halloween of October 1787, without so much as a boo, Sir Edmund Andros showed up in Hartford with a sizable military force, set up headquarters in a local tavern, and demanded that Governor Robert Treat give him Connecticut's 1662 Royal Charter. Connecticut's political leaders came to the tavern and, not quite sure how to handle the situation, stalled for time. They sent someone to bring the charter, which they very carefully kept on their side of the table, read through every single word of its six-foot-long parchment provisions, debated those provisions' meaning and relevance to the question of surrendering the charter in minute detail, and made speech after speech professing their loyalty to the king, without, of course, letting Andros get within arm's reach of the document. That went on for hour after hour. Finally, as darkness was falling, Sir Edmund decided he'd had enough and demanded emphatically that he be given the charter now. At that moment, so the story goes, a gust of wind came in through a window and blew out all the candles in the tavern, plunging it into darkness. Temporary chaos followed as men fumbled around, trying to find flint and tow to relight the candles. When they did so, to their utter amazement, the royal charter that had been sitting right on the table when the lights went out was gone. It had vanished into thin air. Actually, of course, the charter hadn't magically vanished. The candles had been intentionally extinguished to allow someone to hand the charter out the window to Captain Joseph Wadsworth, who quickly ran away and hid the charter in the trunk of a giant white oak tree a short but safe distance away where Sir Edmund would never find it. And that, for the most part, is where the charter oak legend ends presumably, we're left to infer, the king's intention to take over the colony had been thwarted by the charter's disappearance. Andros went away, and the people of Connecticut, through pluck and verve and the convenient presence of a very large, very old, very hollow oak tree, had saved their independence. Well, it's a great story. And Connecticut's have been telling this story to each other for over 300 years. But to what degree does the history of the Charter Oak match up to its legend? Aye, there's the rub. The historical facts of the matter are this. Edmund Andros did show up with a small army in Hartford on October 31, 1687, and he did demand Connecticut's royal charter. Whether he actually got possession of the Charter itself remains unclear. But in the event, it just didn't matter. With or without the Charter, Andros took over the government of Connecticut that day. Anyway... Connecticut became part of the Dominion of New England, and Andros ruled over it for the next year and a half. And not only did Andros take over the government, but many of the officials who in the legend were most opposed to the takeover, including Colonial Governor Robert Treat, who spoke for hours in defense of the charter, almost immediately accepted lucrative jobs in the Andros administration and helped him implement the royal takeover. So why has Connecticut, for more than three centuries now, been so heavily invested in a legend whose story is patently false in its most crucial details? Here, history helps us find the answer. It turns out that Andros's and the king he serves rule over New England was pretty short. While Andros was busy in New England rubbing the royal and Catholic prerogative in the Protestant and Puritan faces of the New Englanders, his boss, King James II, was pretty much doing the same thing to the Protestant majority in England. And in a country whose identity had largely been defined when King Henry VIII left the Catholic Church and declared himself the head of a new Church of England, that didn't go over too well. So in December of 1688, one year and 41 days after Andros took over Connecticut, English Protestants deposed Catholic James II and installed the very Protestant king William and Queen Mary in his place. Well... It took a while for the good news to reach New England, but once it did, the Yankee Protestants followed their English cousin's lead and deposed Sir Edmund Andros, threw him out on his ear, sent him packing. Adios, Andros. (coughs) Not quite sure of what to do about government now that they'd thrown out the official governor, Connecticut, figuratively or literally, that still remains unclear, went to the Charter Oak, dusted off the Royal Charter of 1662, and said, until William and Mary decide what to do, we'll go back to the Charter government. And while they were waiting for the new monarchs, who were busy, as you might imagine, with several more pressing matters, to decide what to do in Connecticut, several things happened. Massachusetts got a new royal governor. New York got a new royal governor and while both of these new governors were Protestants, both were also very loyal to the interest of the crown versus the colonies they governed. Realizing that the presence of a new royal governor, even if a Protestant, might not be such a good thing for Connecticut, our colonial leaders came to a startling realization, and that was that they had never voluntarily surrendered their charter to Andros. And since they'd not given up the charter voluntarily, it was still valid. And because it was still valid, Connecticut was still entitled to rule independently and without a royal governor. By charter. (coughs) This was a big deal. wasn't true, at least literally. Connecticut had surrendered its government to the crown, but it was amazingly useful. And realizing how useful it could be, Connecticut's almost to a person said, that's our story and we're sticking with it. In fact, the story was so useful, a handy legend about a hollow tree, blown out candles, and a hidden document was quickly developed to support the assertion. And on the strength of that story about not giving up its charter, Connecticut managed, not without struggle, to keep its virtual independence right up to the moment that the United States declared its independence in 1776. And that's why, 330 years later, we're still teaching school children the Charter Oak legend, if not the Charter Oak history. Of course... There are other reasons the Charter Oak story has had such a long life. First of all, it is a great story. It's got drama, tension, a little mystery, some intrigue, and it certainly has a good guys versus bad guys, David versus Goliath element to it. And, like some of the best legends, it's a tale about a trickster, where the underdog colonists use a bit of deception to outwit the cruel king's agent. Second, it's an origin story. It speaks to the early years of Connecticut's founding and the formation of the state's identity. And like all beginnings, it's had a disproportionate influence on the values, attitudes, and culture of what came after. I'll give you just one example of this. A couple of years ago, I took a long car trip from Connecticut West, following the stories of people who had left Connecticut in hopes of finding a better life in the years between American independence and the nation's first centennial. My first stop was in New York, and my last stop, as it turned out, was in Wyoming, though I had intended to press on to the Pacific. I found some absolutely fascinating stories from the little Ohio town of Clarendon, which calls itself the land of steady habits after its Connecticut founders, to the stories of the seven Connecticans who died with General Custer at the Battle of Little Bighorn. But one of the best and most surprising stories I found was in the little southern Illinois town of Galesburg, where I encountered a man named William Ransom. Ransom had left Connecticut for Illinois in the 1830s, and by 1858, he had prospered to the point that folks in Galesburg called him Squire Ransom. But despite this successful new life, in 1858, Squire Ransom found himself lonely for Connecticut, and he wondered if there were others in Illinois who felt the way he did. So he decided to find out. He printed up some flyers inviting all persons of Connecticut birth and all heads of families of which either the husband or wife may be of Connecticut origin to come to a Connecticut festival. The festival would consist of an afternoon social gathering followed by a potluck supper, they called it a collation back then, of food brought by the participants. The sons and daughters of Connecticut were also invited to bring memorabilia from their home state to help underscore the Connecticut theme of the event. In keeping with the theme, but otherwise perhaps not such a good choice, Ransom scheduled the party for the midwinter date of January 7th, the birthday of Connecticut Revolutionary War hero Israel Putnam. He was the man who, at the Battle of Bunker Hill, supposedly said, don't fire till you see the whites of their eyes. Uncertain of what would come of his idea, Ransom rented a hall, distributed his flyers, and waited to see what happened. As January came nearer and the Illinois winter grew sharper, an unspoken question loomed large. Would anybody really come? January seventh, 1859, the day Ransom had set for the party, dawned inauspiciously. It proved to be one of the coldest and severest of the whole winter. Only the hardiest dared venture out into the Illinois flatlands in that kind of weather. But venture out they did to Ransom's astonishment more than 300 former Connecticutans showed up in Galesburg that snowbound day, ranging from the old, sedate, and wrinkled to the young, beautiful, and accomplished. They brought oysters, baked beans, turkey, pumpkin, apple pies, and a range of Connecticut memorabilia, including a two-and-a-half-foot-high cake surrounded by wooden nutmegs with the word Nutmeg State written on the icing. And, as was customary at such occasions the highlight of the event were the toasts. 19th century people frequently made a habit of making toasts, sometimes dozens and dozens of them at special occasions, until everyone there was clearly toasted. But, as in all things, the origin toasts were the most important of all. And at this 19th century flash party for homesick Connecticutans, the first three toasts are the most indicative. Toast number one, to Connecticut, our common mother, spoke to every person there of the original home they had departed for the siren call of manifest destiny. The second toast, to the charter oak, may it ever live in the memory of all speaks to the power of that iconic legend a century and a half after the legendary event occurred and a century and a half before today and at a place more than a thousand miles away from Connecticut itself. That the Charter Oak was the homesick Connecticut's second toast speaks to the power of that story on people then, the same power it has, though perhaps to a slightly lesser degree today. The third toast, by the way, and I would be remiss if I didn't talk about it, was to the Connecticut River, the Mississippi of New England. Of course, I like to think of the Mississippi as the Connecticut River of Illinois, don't you? Now, let me quickly say just two more things about why this particular story is Connecticut's most iconic legend. I've said that it's important because it's a great story and because it's an origin story but it's also an important story. Its underlying messages are about a people and a colony defending their independence, resisting arbitrary power, standing up for their rights. These are themes that are fundamental to American identity. But in the Charter Oak story, they're being acted out more than a century before the American Revolution. It is, in a sense, the story of independence before independence of the spirit that produced the spirit of 76. Finally, and I do think this is a big part of its hold on the Connecticut psyche, the Charter Oak story is based on an incredibly powerful visual symbol, an ancient oak tree. Oak trees that can live to be up to 600 years old have their own mystical and mythical qualities. Just ask your local druid. Moreover, the Charter wasn't just a symbolic oak, it was the real deal. A tree that had been part of Connecticut long before the first Europeans showed up here. When Adrian Block reached Hartford on the onrust in 1614, the Charter Oak stood out even then. Because of its great size, the Sukiog Indians regarded it as a tree with Manitou, or spiritual power, and reportedly held treaty talks with other tribes beneath its branches. One of the sub-legends connected with the Charter Oak has to do with this first period of European occupation a couple of generations before the Charter Incident. This sublegend says that when the English started their settlement on the land that became Hartford, the Sukiog fervently asked them to preserve this particular tree above all others. It was, they said, central to their survival, since the tree told them when to plant the maize that was their primary food crop. Only when the leaves of this great oak were as large as a mouse's ear, the Sukiyog supposedly said, was it safe to start the spring planting. Of course, we know about this legend primarily through the poetry of Lydia Sigourney, the poet who in her lifetime was called the Sweet Singer of Hartford, who wrote a poem describing the exchange between the Sukiog and the settlers about the tree. Sigourney was, during the early 19th century, the most popular female author in America. Her poems, a model of the moral sentimentality that surrounded the period of religious and moral reform historians call the Second Great Awakening. I think the fact that in this poem Sigourney connects the oak with one of the most basic human needs, food security, reveals at a psychological level just how elementally important the Charter Oak became both culturally and symbolically to these Connecticut's. It was represented in legend as necessary not only to the survival of independent government, but also to the physical survival of the people who preceded that government. Symbolic significance is to be sure, but in legends symbols are really significant. Another sub-legend of the same time period, or even earlier, further reinforces the tree's symbolic importance as derived from its physical presence. The legend, captured by H.R. Gotcher, who recorded it in his 1904 self-published book, Charter Oak, notes that the Connecticut River itself, at a very ancient period, expanded in the form of a lake and extended itself all the way up to the roots of the Great Oak. The indigenous people, the legend says, would then paddle up to the tree and tie their canoes to its trunk. This legendary link between Connecticut's River of Life and the state's Great Tree of Life dramatically underscores the degree to which the Charter Oak was woven into the identity, culture, and zeitgeist of this state and its people. And from the time of Adrian Block to the days of Samuel Colt, a period of nearly two and a half centuries, the Charter Oak was, especially after the hiding of the Royal Charter, a cultural and physical touchstone for those in first the colonies and then the state's capital. People saw it every day from their fields and from their houses, passed by it on their parades, and later walked to their factory jobs under the shade of its ancient branches. The Charter Oak existed as both a symbol and a living presence for centuries, which helps account, I think, for the incredible hold it took on the Connecticut psyche. So when, about 1250 a.m. on Thursday, August 21st of 1856, in the midst of one of the heaviest rainstorms on record for the month of August, the venerable Oak, 33 feet in circumference and 75 feet tall, toppled to the ground with a tremendous crash, leaving only six feet of trunk still standing, it was as if a great figure had died. Our whole community, old and young, rich and poor, were grieved, the Hartford Current reported. Despite the continuing deluge, which saw the Connecticut River rise ten feet overnight, crowds thronged to the spot. Chief Justices and Reverend Doctors mixed with sturdy laborers to view the fallen monarch, the Current noted. The whole town came together in mourning. At noon, as workers gave up lunch breaks to come and pay respects to their fallen icon, the Colt Armory's band gathered at the tree to pay mournful homage. First, they solemnly played the dead march from Saul. Then, to add sentimentality to pathos, they played home sweet home. And finally, to add patriotic gravitas to the sadness of the moment, They concluded with a rendition of Hail Columbia, the tune composed for the inauguration of George Washington in 1789, and which was in 1856 as close as America had to a national anthem. Throughout that mournful day, the visitations continued. Later that afternoon, a daguerreotype photo was taken of the fallen tree. At sundown, bells all over the city tolled somberly for an hour as the tree was draped in mourning with not one, but two national flags. A token of the universal feeling, the current said, that one of the most sacred links that bind these modern days to the irrevocable past has been suddenly parted. The next morning, none other than Lydia Sigourney herself, the sweet singer of Hartford, set out to capture the feelings of the moment in yet another poem to the venerable Oak. Her nine stanzas, 72-line poem, how was she able to write so much, so magnificently, with such speed, is, I fear, too powerful for some of the youngest and oldest of us to hear without suffering, enduring sorrow, trauma, and pain. And so I will, To give you just the flavor of the power of her words, recite just bits of the epic poem Mrs. Sigourney, simply titled, The Tree. Woe for the mighty tree, the monarch of the plain, the storm hath reft its noble heart, it ne'er shall tower again. Woe for the ancient oak, our pilgrim father's pride that shook the centuries from its crown and flourished when they died. Throngs gathering round the spot, their mournful memories weave, even children in strange silence stand, unconscious why they grieve or for their baskets seek some relic spray to glean acorn or precious leaf to press their bible leaves between was there no other prey o storm that thundered by wreaking thy vengeance neath the shroud of a wild midnight sky Was there no kingly elm, Majestic, broad, and free, That thou must in madness smite Our tutelary tree, Our beacon of the past, Our chronicle of time, Our mecca, To whose greenwood glade Come feet from every clime. Hark! Hark! To the echoing dirge in measures deep and slow while on the breeze our banner floats draped in the weeds of woe. When you... To Sigourney and to tens of thousands of people both in Connecticut and elsewhere across America, the death of the Charter Oak was simultaneously a personal and a national loss. In some intangible way linked to its legendary reputation, the falling of the Charter Oak seemed to mark a grave transition, the end of something important remembered and the beginning of something still as yet unknown. It was almost as if this fallen tree was symbolically foreshadowing for these people racing toward a civil war that at that moment none of them really believed would happen, that the world they were born into had ended and a world they could not even comprehend was about to begin. But people were reluctant to let that old world go. They desperately wanted to hang on to the past, and what that required was to have something tangible to hold on to. The New York Times, in its first report of the Charter Oaks' fall, seemed to sense what was about to happen. In an article titled Yankee Sentiment, the paper praised Connecticut's public outpouring of grief over the Charter Oaks' demise as something uncharacteristic of a state not generally suspected of being given to sentiment they found the show of emotion most creditable to their refinement. They further expected that this Connecticut show of emotion would astonish many people who, given the state's reputation for crafty dealing and inventive manufacturing, probably assumed that the tree, rather than being mourned, would be immediately manufactured into clocks and nutmegs. But now, the paper cheekily surmised, we presume that its precious wood will be religiously preserved and made up into snuff boxes, canes, fans, and other objects that can be kept as mementos of the venerable tree. And that is exactly what happened. People, and by that I mean virtually everyone, wanted a piece of that tree. You can even see this in Mrs. Sigourney's never-to-be-remembered poetic elegy, where even the children, for their baskets seek some relic spray to glean, acorn or precious leaf to press their bible leaves between. J.W. Stewart, who owned the property on which the charter oak stood, and who had worked for years to preserve the aged tree and advance its reputation, suddenly found himself one of the most sought-after men in the country. The Hartford Times reported that thousands of people are visiting the tree and bringing away such sprigs and parts of limbs as Mr. Stewart permits. The week after the great tree fell, the current noted that Stewart's good nature, a trait for which he was widely known, was now being taxed to its utmost bounds by requests for relics from the oak, from personal solicitation by letter and by telegraph. The Charter Oak in Death became both an icon of national patriotism and an intensely personal connection to Connecticut. Stewart, even as he commissioned an engraving of the fallen oak for sale to the public and rushed to complete a history of the tree he had long been writing, now found himself managing an endless series of requests for special-purpose items made from Charter Oak wood. Within days of the tree's downfall, he was preparing a large, fine limb of the oak to be sent to U.S. President Franklin Pierce for use as the elbow for a new ship to be called, not surprisingly, the Charter Oak. A month later, in answer to a request from Philadelphia, Stewart sent a bell yoke carved from Charter Oak wood to be displayed in Independence Hall beside the Liberty Bell. At the state level, an ornately carved Charter Oak frame was created to hold the 1662 Royal Charter, currently on display in the Hall of Governors at the State Supreme Court building. And an intricately carved charter oak chair replete with state seal, American eagle, and a host of other legendary symbols was created for the presiding officer of the state senate. And this was only part of what Journal Enquirer writer Tom Breen called the oak lore that was created in the years after the charter oak fell. At the Wadsworth Athenaeum, they display an intricate charter oak crib that was made for the children of Sam and Elizabeth Colt. It's in a different area than the Charles Brownell painting of the Charter Oak framed in, you guessed it, Charter Oak wood, painted in 1857 from sketches made before the tree fell. This painting, one of four Brownell paintings of the tree he made that year, is the iconic image most people associate with the legendary tree. Creating oak lore from the remains of the iconic Charter Oak became something of a cottage industry. Well, actually it was big business. Items of remembrance made from the ancient tree included Charter Oak drinking cups, cufflinks, clocks, water pitchers, watch fobs, shirt studs, pins, bracelets, snuff boxes, earrings, paperweights, colt pistol grips, oak nutmegs, and chess sets carved with Charter Oak Indian figures as the pieces. A Hartford piano manufacturer named John H. Most certainly made the most of the tree's demise. He made 37 pianos and matching stools with charter oak frames, carvings, and veneer, which he sold for $2,000, four times a regular piano's retail price. The run on charter oak wood was so great and so continuous that someone early on suggested that I.W. Stewart set aside enough of the wood from the oak so that when his time came, he could be buried in a charter oak coffin. Some people appear to have reacted negatively to the commercialization of the carcass of the great icon. A meeting of the city was called in late October to discuss whether the remaining trunk of the tree should be placed back on the stump and allowed to rot away naturally. The current opposed this plan, evidently advanced by some of Hartford's good and great, saying, "...we cannot imagine how the idea came to be conceived by persons of so much intelligence and taste." At the end of the day, the stump-rot plan fell as hard as the tree itself. So the manufacturer of oak lore went on undeterred, and so did Connecticut's veneration for this legendary icon of their past. A dozen years after the mighty oak fell, none other than Mark Twain, writing in the Daily Alta, California of March 3, 1868, told his West Coast readers about his recent encounter with the memory of the tree while on his very first visit to Hartford. His story speaks so much to the power of legend, and particularly this legend, that I'll use his tale to close this lecture. He aptly named the story, The Charter Oak. You may have heard of the Charter Oak. It used to stand in Hartford. The charter of the state of Connecticut was once hidden in it at a time of great political tribulation, and this happy accident made it famous. Its memory is dearly cherished in this ancient town. Anything that is made of its wood is deeply venerated by the inhabitants and is regarded as very precious. I went all about town with a citizen whose ancestor came over with the pilgrims, and he showed me all the historic relics of Hartford. He showed me a beautiful carved chair in the Senate chamber where the bewigged and awfully homely old-time governors of the Commonwealth frowned from their canvases overhead. Made from charter oak, he said. I gazed upon it with inexpressible solicitude. He showed me another carved chair in the house Charter oak, he said. I gazed again with interest. Then we looked at the rusty, stained, and famous old charter, and presently I turned to move away. But he solemnly drew me back and pointed to the frame. Charter oak, he said. I worshipped. We went down to Wadsworth's Athenaeum, and I wanted to look at pictures, but he conveyed me silently to a corner and pointed at a log, rudely shaped somewhat like a chair, and whispered, Charter Oak. I exhibited the accustomed reverence. He showed me a walking stick, a needle case, a dog collar, a three-legged stool, a boot jack, a dinner table, a ten-pen alley, a toothpick, a... I interrupted him and said, "'Never mind, we'll bunch the whole lumber yard "'and call it Charter Oak,' he said. "'Well,' I said, "'now let us go see some Charter Oak for a change.' I meant that for a joke, but how was he to know that, me being a stranger? He took me around and showed me Charter Oak enough to build a plank road from here to Salt Lake City. It's a shame to confess it, But I did begin to get a little weary of Charter Oak, and when he invited me to go home with him to tea, it filled me with a blessed sense of relief. He introduced me to his wife, and they left me alone a moment to amuse myself with their little boy. I said in a grave paternal way, my son, what is your name? Charter Oak Johnson. This was sufficient for a sensitive nature like mine, I departed out of that mansion without another word. And with that reminder of the persuasive power of the Charter Oak legend, I too will take my leave of this story and thank you for your time and attention. Thanks for listening. For more great Connecticut history stories, subscribe to Connecticut Explored Magazine at ctexplored.org. The latest issue has a special pull-out guide to all of Grading the Nutmeg's 100 episodes. I'm state historian Walt Woodward. Whether you've been a listener from episode one or are just joining the Grading the Nutmeg podcast audience, thank you for helping make our podcast a success. We hope you'll keep listening and maybe get a friend to listen to to the next episode of Grading the Nutmeg.